Hey, good morning. Good to see everybody in the room here. Hello, everybody in the room. And uh, thanks for everybody who's tuning in online. Um, Michelle told me that she can see that we have a, a special guest online. My very own sister is, uh, is tuning in to the live stream. What an honor. Thank you. Glad you're here. Um, speaking of honor, we have uh, a surprise happening this week. Um, like, particularly Michelle and I have a, a, a surprise. Um, there's a there's a man that Russ Wiegan and I met in 2019 when we took a trip to Nigeria. And if anybody was around during that time, you know that that was a that was a bumpy trip. Um, a lot. Of, um, seriously, some of the most difficult moments in my life. And yet there were a couple of people who were there who were uh, really encouraging and, and helpful. And one of them is a, a guy who we refer to because that's, this is how he was introduced to us. We refer to him as the Honorable. Um, that's, that's what we call him. He's from a, a, a church tradition that's very much about honor. Uh, so he happened to be in the country and contacted me and said, what if I came to Wisconsin? Could you uh, like set up some teaching times and some big events? And I was like, well, um, we don't really do big events, uh, but it's a beautiful time to see Wisconsin. So if you want to come here and have kind of a vacation, uh, then I could help you do that. And uh, he thought about it didn't get back to me right away, and eventually went, okay, all right, before I go back to Nigeria, I'll have a vacation in Wisconsin. He, he, said, uh, he said, I bought a winter coat. <laughs> so he'll be here next week Sunday in, in this room. I'd love for you to meet the, the Honorable Bishop Collins. Uh, we'll, we'll be here on Sunday next week. And... Um, also related to that trip in Nigeria, it was Kurt Olson who we went with, and Kurt Olson is in uh, Africa right now doing a series of trainings. And, um, and just to like give you, this is hard to imagine, but Kurt trains people to be disciple makers, and in the ten or so years that he's been doing that, uh, he can track a million new disciples of Jesus who have come from the thousands of people who he has trained. It's just, it's hard to even conceive of what that looks like. Um, I bring him up because he contacted me and asked for prayer. He is in Africa and Asia for 11 weeks, and there's so much demand for training that he doesn't have enough funding to do all the training and so he asked for, uh, for, for our prayers related to that. So uh, thank you for letting me talk about some like peripheral things that are going on, friends of New Day. Uh, let's pray together right now uh, as we start this morning. Um, let's pray together for, for Kurt uh, and, and his situation. God, we know that as you call, as you direct you also provide the resources. And so uh, Kurt's uh, 
statement when he contacted me was uh, that, that he felt like you were saying to him that he needs to go and train more people, and he was saying to, to you, God, then you're going to need to pay for it. <laughs> so, God, we pray that uh, you would provide everything that he needs, that, um, that your word would, uh, would, would go out, that your spirit would uh, fill people, uh, and that disciples would make disciple-makers uh, that lives would be transformed in an exponential way for your glory, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So we're in a series that uh, we're calling Things Are Going to Be Different. Now, we know that things in the world are going to be different, that the, the change that is happening in the world is happening at an exponential rate. Change is happening faster and faster and faster, and sometimes it's hard to keep up with that change. Change is inevitable. We also know that we need to be people who are being transformed, not stagnant, not staying the same as we were, but growing, maturing, developing from the inside out. Change is inevitable. Transformation is intentional. Even as uh, we, we have a God who sends his Holy Spirit to do transformation within us, we have work to do alongside God in our lives. I'm just going to take a, a, just a side moment here to uh, point out that um, we do have kids on that side of the building. And, uh, and one of the things that we're working on is um, doors, uh, like more things. So if you can hear them um, and you wonder, can Pastor Aaron even, even hear that? Yeah. Oh, I can hear it. I know that. We are uh, we're decidedly, one of the things that's going to be different about this church, because we know things are going to be different in the world, we know things need to be different in us, so... We know things need to be different in the church. One of the things that's going to be different about us in this church is we're going to operate more like a uh, more like a family environment where there is noise and things happen, and uh, and we're just going to be patient with each other and have grace for one another as that uh, as that goes on because we want it to be less about the big show. We've done that. We've done the big stage and the lights and the. Uh, the concert sound, and um, and we want to be more face-to-face. We want to be making interpersonal connections because we know that that connectedness is critically important for us to develop a, a more godly character. That's what we've been learning is that uh, the way our brains are wired is... It, it, it takes more than us just deciding to do something different. We have patterns in our brain that are so deep that they're deeper than the part of our brain that makes those decisions. And in order to tap into those deeper parts of our brain, to really get to our character, to really get to that part of us 
that reacts to something in the moment before we can even think about it. To get there, we need to be face-to-face. We need to be making meaningful connections. And as we make meaningful connections, as we see the joy on other people's faces and realize we're loved, we're accepted here, this is a safe place, and we become part of a group, and that group has some agreement on the direction that we're headed then we can start to say, well, that thing that you were doing, I don't think that's what we do here. So let's talk about what we do and let's work on doing that. That's correction. So last week we learned that the group identity of the church needs to come from Jesus. Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 5 that we looked at last week says, Don't be selfish. Don't try to impress others. Be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves. Don't look out only for your own interests, but take an interest in others too. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. That was last week. This week, we're looking into how a Christ-centered group navigates conflict. I mentioned last week that Michelle and I were at the Carroll University homecoming football game. Um, Carroll won 62 to 14. It was pretty lopsided. Um, there was a point late in the game, um, what the, the, the announcers on TV, they say that things get a little chippy sometimes. Um, things were getting a little chippy where... Uh, the the team that was being absolutely blown away was, I, I think, feeling some frustration. There was a moment in the game where there was a flag on the play, and it was for unsportsmanlike conduct. And then there was a second flag on the play, also for unsportsmanlike conduct. One of them was on the visiting team, and the other was on the home team. I'm not going to get super into football right now, but those penalties offset, which resulted in the uh, the, the visiting team uh, actually being able to get a, a first down. The coach was livid for the home team guy, even though they were way that the scoreboard didn't matter. As that player came off the field, Michelle and I are sitting behind the Carroll University bench so we can hear what this coach is saying. I can't say it all. Um, uh, right, right, right here, right now. What we did hear was uh, is something like, what were you thinking? And then the player apparently tried to justify the penalty that, uh, that, that, that he had that he had done. It was too quiet for us to hear, as you can imagine, as he's getting chewed out. And then the coach said something like, I don't care what he did, and went on chewing out this player. And then when the coach was done, other players gathered around this, uh, the the player had committed the penalty. They're patting him on the shoulder. They're letting him know, we get it, we get it. You know, here's what the coach is. I'm learning about character development and the importance of being part of a group that has a group identity and the importance of correcting in a way that that is 
uh, not just shaming people out of the group, but that is helping restore people back into the group with a, a transformation, with a, a new character. Here's what the coach might have been trying to communicate. Um, we're, and I would just imagine the, the shouting coach actually saying this, we're a team that follows guidelines of good sportsmanship. That's a statement about group identity. This is what kind of team we are. You're a good player. And then you reacted in a way that served your own anger that ended up interrupting your whole team's success. That's telling the truth about an error that had happened. That's not who we are as a team. And I know that's not who you want to be as a player. That's a call back to the group identity. You're going to have some time on the sideline to think about a better way to handle a situation like this in the future. There's an on-ramp to be restored to the group, to the team, to get back on the field. That's exactly how coaches talk, right? You're going to take a moment on the bench and think about what you've done. No, that isn't that's, that's not the wording, but there's a concept there. There's a, a principle there. From the perspective of, of, of brain science, the critical components to this correction are to have established attachments. That was indicated by the teammates consoling this guy. Ah, we're, we're part of the same team. We're part of the same group. You have established attachments. You've defined a group identity. We're a team that plays by the rules. You address the violation as something that's inconsistent with that identity. We're a team that plays by the rules, and you just didn't play by the rules. And then provide a path for reintegration, for restoration. So sports teams have to correct their players in order to succeed in the long run, and disciples of Jesus need to do that in the church as well. After all, the church has a goal that's so much more important than winning a football game. Jesus said, I will build my church. His gathering of disciples, his group, his team. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not overpower it. We're part of something that's meant to storm the gates of hell, to plunder souls, to be brought back into new life in the kingdom of God. What we do really matters to God and to the people around us who don't know him. So we need to take seriously the responsibility Jesus gives us to keep each other on course as we strive to grow in maturity, in holiness. Yes, things are going to be different. Change is inevitable. Transformation is intentional. So I want us to be able to confidently say this identity statement about New Day. We are a people who are full of truth and love when navigating conflict. We are a people who are full of truth and love when navigating conflict. Jesus gave clear instructions for handling conflict and correction in the church. Before we even get into it, let's remember what a church is. 
There are only two passages where we have a record of Jesus using the word that we translate into English as the word church. One is in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18. I already made reference to it where he says, He will build his church, and the gates of hell will not overpower it. And the other is Matthew 18, where he gives instructions about handling conflict in the church. The Greek word that Matthew used to record what Jesus said, the Greek word that we interpret as the word church is uh, the word ekklesia. If you're writing that down, uh, E-K-K-L-E-S-I-A. I just want to practice uh, saying that. Say ekklesia. Ekklesia, nicely done. It's, you, know, you don't get to say a lot of words with two Ks in them right in a row. Um, by using the word ecclesia, Jesus did not evoke images of the temple or synagogue. He could have said, I'm building my temple or I'm building my synagogue. A synagogue would have been like the Jewish version of what we understand to be a local church. There'd be a synagogue building. He didn't say, I'm building my temple, I'm building my synagogue. Those things would have brought to mind images of buildings. It would have brought to mind long-established policies and practices. And instead, he made it clear that he was doing something that nobody had seen before. One of the two times that we see him use the word ecclesia is in Matthew 18. And before he gets to the word church, we learn some things about what the church should be like and how it should operate, even though it didn't exist at the time Jesus gives these instructions. Matthew 18, 15. Jesus says, if another believer, or in, in Greek that we translate into English, it literally says, if your brother sins against you, go privately and point out the offense. If the other person listens and confesses it, you have won that person back. Now, I'm glad the New Living Translation that I'm reading from, it has a footnote here that Jesus said more literally, if your brother sins, because it helps us understand the bond of the group better. If we just read another believer, well, that could be someone who simply believes the same things we believe, and yet there's no relational connection. The way Jesus said it, there was a relational connection connection, a bond, like the Old Testament Hebrew, chesed, the, the connection that we learned about a, a few weeks ago. That's like a, a family bond, a loving connection. And when you have that, that connection with someone who you think needs correction, Jesus says, go to them privately, point out the offense. Not in a way that embarrasses or dishonors them in front of other people, and certainly not indirectly through a third person, this is a situation where you have people who feel safe talking with each other face to face because there's trust. They, they have a bond, a loving connection, and they know they're on the same team. Jesus doesn't say, draft a letter, send an instant message or an email. No, sometimes 
when we write something out and send it, it only makes things worse. You don't have the tone. You don't have that relational, face-to-face, nonverbal component. Have a face-to-face, and that could be the end of the conflict. Just go and talk to the person. Verse 16, Jesus continues, But if you're unsuccessful, take one or two others with you and go back again so that everything you say may be confirmed by two or three witnesses. You know, it's possible if things didn't go so well in that face-to-face, it's possible that you may even be misunderstanding the situation. And having a neutral third party there to mediate could help you see eye to eye. Verse 17, if the person still refuses to listen, take your case to the church. What's the Greek word there? Ekklesia. Ekklesia. Now remember, at this point, there's no church yet. Jesus is still doing his ministry. There is no church. And he says, take it to the ecclesia, which at that time, the the Greek word would have been used to describe a people gathered for a purpose. It was most often used to describe like a, a government task force. Take it to the people who are assembled for a purpose. Local groups. That's what Jesus was looking ahead to. A time when disciples would gather with a purpose in local groups. And those local groups would strive to live out the character and the instructions of Jesus in order to be his witnesses locally, nearby, and around the world. They would storm the gates of hell together, seeking and saving the lost, seeing people who were dead in their sins, starting a new life in Jesus. They would be baptized to show their new commitment to Jesus, and they would join with other disciples in communion to renew that commitment and to remember who it is that it is Jesus who unites them to each other and to God and what it cost him to do that. This is important and precious. So when there's error that threatens that unity with God, or with each other, Jesus says, don't ignore it. Address it. Starting face-to-face with your brother or sister, only getting two or three others involved if it's not resolved, and then taking it to the family, the local assembly of disciples, the team, the church. (laughs) I had a a situation early in my ministry I don't know if I'm allowed to say the word cocky um, on Sunday mornings, but uh, um, uh, I, yeah, I just did. So, um, I, uh, so that's how some people described me early in my ministry. They just didn't know me very well. But uh, I, I did have a, a telephone conversation. We're part of a, a group of, of churches 
that are voluntarily uh, associated with each other for the purpose of mission. A group called Converge, and in Wisconsin and Upper Michigan, we call it Converge Great Lakes. And the uh, leader of that organization at that, at that time in Wisconsin and Upper Michigan, um, African-American preacher professor, uh, Dr. Dwight Perry, and uh, he gave me a call and asked me about some of the things that were going on here. And I told him, and he said, well, that's not really the way you're supposed to do that when you're starting a new church, because that was what we were doing at the time. There are certain, there are certain protocols that we have, and, uh, and, and I, I was not cooperative. Uh, I was not taught to be cooperative. Um, I was taught by, I was taught the the Wild West cowboy plan of church planting. So I'm coming at this guy with the, the uh, Wild West response and, and arguing with him about how things should be. And eventually he said, um, you know, I'm going to head up there on Wednesday and, and we can talk about this face to face. He is a man who knew the instructions of Jesus and who followed the instructions and who knew that what was happening here what was a potential for greater division. He was already sensing the division, and rather than trying to solve this over the phone, it, he saw that it was important enough to be in a room together. So he drove up from Madison, and we talked for four hours I never offered him lunch. I didn't realize that until after he left. Like he drove up from Madison. We talked for four hours. He drove back to Madison. And I was like, wow, we just talked through the entire lunch. I never offered like maybe, but do you want, would you like something to eat? Um, and in the follow-up to that conversation, he made it very clear that, he had heard what I was saying. He saw that we were on the same team and that I had been taught some things that were a little different. And some of the things that I said, he needed to seriously consider. And when he expressed to me that he had heard me and that he sees some changes need to be made, I realized this is a, this is a man who I can respect and follow. And it wasn't long after that that he asked if I would be on the governing board for Converge Great Lakes. And I said, I'm really honored that you would ask. I don't think so, though. And he said, well, why not? And I said, well, I know some of the people who are on the board, and there's one person in particular who's on the board who I don't think I can get along with. I know some of you have known me a long time, and you're like, I just can't imagine Pastor Aaron not getting along with someone. He's always so nice and agreeable. Um, I said, there's this particular guy that even before I launched a church, uh, when I was a, a church planting intern, I had heard some of the things, not directly from him, but somebody told me some things that he said that I just can't agree with, and I'm not sure that I can serve alongside him. And, and, and Dr. Perry said, well, um, you really need to talk to him. And I knew he was right. 
so I, I did, I, I, I did a phone, I started with a phone call and I called this guy and said, so, um, I know you know who I am and I know who you are and um, I need to let you know that I've held some things against you uh, because of things that I heard you said and, and I need to talk to you about that. And he listened and he straightened some things out. We had a good conversation. I ended up joining the board. And this guy, who I couldn't get along with, apparently, but uh, this guy is Ken Nabby, who is now in Dr. Perry's position. Um, and, uh, and we are uh, very close, well-aligned partners in, in, in ministry. It took somebody saying, though, we're a people who, when we have a problem, we go to the person. Because unity is so much more important than that thing you're holding on to, that offense. If the person still refuses to listen, Take your case to the church, is what Jesus says then. Remember, no church at this point. Then if he or she won't accept the church's decision, treat that person as a pagan, a Gentile, or a corrupt tax collector. So Jesus says, if, the, if you... Talk to that person face-to-face, -face and it doesn't get resolved. Bring in two or three witnesses. See if that irons it out. If that doesn't work, he says, there's going to be a point where you have gathered disciples. Take the issue to the gathered disciples. And if that person who is operating outside of the group's identity, and the group identity in this case, is striving to operate with the character of Christ. So if somebody's coming in and they're, they're resisting wise guidance or correction, take it to the whole family. And if that person still says, no, I'm going to keep doing things my way, Jesus says, Treat them as a pagan, as a Gentile, uh, or a corrupt, corrupt tax collector. Now, I used to look at this and think that Jesus was saying, if they don't come, kind of come back into line, then you treat them the way you would treat a disreputable sinner who you despise. But that's not what he's saying, though. He's actually saying, treat this person as I would treat a disreputable sinner whom I love. Because when you read through the New Testament and you read how Jesus talks about Gentiles and how he talks about tax collectors, he's accused over and over by self-righteous religious people. He's, he's accused of caring about them too much and he turns around and says i tell you this prostitute 
has a better chance of meeting me in heaven than proud, self-righteous, religious people. So when Jesus says, treat this person as you, or as a, as a pagan or as a gent or as a corrupt tax collector, he's not saying, shame them, shun them, never let them back, don't ever associate with them. He's simply saying, love them in a different way than as if they were a, a part of the unity, a part of the community. And that's what we see from the, not just Jesus and his teaching, but also his closest followers. The goal is to help restore them. We thought you wanted to be a part of what was going on here. We're a people who do this and not that. So if you want to be persistent in doing that, this just isn't working out. When you feel ready and willing to do this and not that, let us know. I've been in situations where I've had to tell somebody in church leadership that if they persist in a certain way, I can't continue to support them in leadership. Although they're welcome to participate in Sunday worship and in a small group, just like we would welcome anyone. I can't have you, though, persist in something that you know isn't according to the instructions and the example of Christ and hold you up in a leadership position. I've also had to tell people that they're no longer welcome to participate in Sunday worship or in a small group like when there are domestic situations where someone in the church feels unsafe. Those are some of the most difficult conversations I have ever had. We're going to have to have some difficult conversations in order to say with confidence, we are a people who are full of truth and love when navigating conflict. I can see four challenges that we're going to face as we strive to obey Jesus in navigating conflict. The first one is consumer mentality. In the first century, if you had a gathering of disciples nearby, uh, you figured out how to get along with them because they were the only game in town. Even 2,000 years later, churches in the United States, they used to be an integral part of social life, culture, education, and community resources. And over the decades, other organizations and programs have stepped into those roles, and people increasingly have said about the church, I'm not getting anything out of this. And in the later part of the 20th century, churches, uh, as people were fleeing churches that uh, they, they said we're irrelevant. They, um, they don't care about me. Churches started popping up that were intentionally more relevant to people's daily lives, more sensitive to people who had a bad taste in their mouth about organized religion. And that has done a good job of helping de-churched people reconnect somewhere. The negative side effect has been that we're training generations now to see church as an organization that ought to cater to them rather than a people who are meaningfully connected for an important purpose. 
And if someone in a church challenges your attitudes or actions, you can simply choose from a dozen other nearby churches that offer essentially the same thing. Church hopping, sheep shifting. And when the measure of success for a church and a church leader, the primary measure, because it's so easy to measure, of success is attendance, then there's more incentive for leaders to let problematic people stick around without correcting them. After all, they might leave. They might take other people with them, and then we're less successful. There's also less incentive to tell someone who's a church hopper to go back to where they came from, to be reconciled. That consumer mentality makes it difficult to help people form their character into the character of Christ because it's just so easy to just slip away. So consumer mentality, over-truthing at the expense of love. We've talked about this a, a bit in the past for people who see being right as more important than preserving relationships. The instructions that Jesus gives in Matthew 18 can be taken as a kind of a hunting license for finding people who are sinners. That's my job. I got to go tell people that they're sinning. I've heard it said that the church is the only army that shoots its own wounded. Being too aggressive in addressing sin and conflict does not help people form their character into the character of Christ. Overloving at the expense of truth. So over-truthing at the expense of love is when we're so interested in the truth that we don't think about the relationships. Over-loving at the expense of truth is when we're so interested in maintaining relationships that we don't say the truth. The majority of us at New Day tend to overemphasize love at the expense of truth, meaning that we'd rather not say something to someone about a sin, even when that sin threatens to derail them or the church. We'd rather say nothing, even when it continues to bother us. We hope that the problem just goes away. Even though we know all the scriptures that say, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Okay, so we pretend to not be angry. <laughs> or we might let off some steam and justify our feelings by asking someone else if they've noticed the same thing. Hey, um... I just have some concerns about this person. Um, I haven't talked to them about it. I just want to kind of confirm if maybe you're seeing some of the same things that I'm seeing. That's a lie. That's unhealthy. What makes it worse is when we say something like, you know who I should uh, think we should really be praying for? I think we should really be praying for this person because they're obviously a mess. Knowing our tendency to overemphasize love at the expense of truth, I am certain that we have some face-to-face -face conversations that need to happen here and that they may start with a confession, something like, I have been harboring this for too long probably out of my own fears or pride or insecurity, please forgive me for
for not coming to you sooner. We're only preventing each other from becoming more like Christ when we withhold the truth about what looks like a sin or a character issue that we've observed. So consumer mentality, over-truthing, over-loving, the fourth challenge, prioritizing face-to-face connections. We are not good at this. And if we're not interacting with uh, our group, our people, face-to-face on a regular basis, it's awkward and a bit frightening to have someone ask us if we can get together to talk. I'm sorry, I'm like, do you know what it means? Maybe you've heard this joke before. You know what it means when the preacher looks at his timer? Absolutely nothing. Yeah. Uh, we, we, my oldest daughter is moving back into our, our, our house. Um, uh, her car was stolen in St. Paul, and that, for her, that was the last straw. She's <laughs> it's, been a rough, uh, it's been a rough year. She's moving back into our house. Um, We've had to have a conversation with her um, when she has lived in our house um, that we tend, to, we tend to get frustrated and frazzled with each other. And we realized part of it is because the only time that we talk to her is when we say, hey, you, can you do some things differently? Can you, like, maybe instead of leaving your dishes in the sink, can you put them in the dishwasher? You know... After you use a microwave, if uh, it, and you open it up before the timer's done, if you just hit clear, then when I look at it to see what time it is, instead of it being 14 seconds, I'll actually see what time it is. Can you please just think about other people living in this house? And, and we do tend to have these frazzled conversations. And, and we, we got to a point where we were like, man, we just don't even want to be around each other. But it was because the only time we talked to each other face-to-face was when something needed to be corrected. So we said, how about this? We need to prioritize having some relational time where we sit in the same space just so that we can be connected to each other. And it's not always about what needs to be corrected. I know this is something... I need to get better at connecting with people in in the church, another person, a couple, a family, over a cup of coffee or a meal with no agenda except to increase the joy and the connectedness that we feel for each other. It builds trust so that when there is a time for a difficult conversation, we can receive correction because we know it's coming from someone who cares for us. So, Those are four challenges as we face to strive to be a church that speaks the truth in love when navigating conflict. And maybe you can think of more. Okay, there is one more. Pride. Each of us must be willing to receive correction to learn to actually be glad when someone is willing to speak the truth to us. God has some things to say about that. Psalm 141, verse 5, Let the godly strike me. It will be a kindness. 
If they correct me, it's soothing medicine. Don't let me refuse it. This is a prayer. God, don't let me refuse correction from godly people. Proverbs 15, 31 and 32. If you listen to constructive criticism, you will be at home among the wise. If you reject discipline, you only harm yourself. But if you listen to correction, you grow in understanding. Proverbs 12.1, just to be perfectly clear, to learn, you must love discipline. It is stupid to hate correction. Maybe one of the reasons we tend to be a church that withholds the truth from each other is that we're so resistant to receiving the truth ourselves. We expect everyone to be as defensive or hurt or angry as we tend to be. The good news is we don't have to stay that way. God has a plan for us. He believes that we can grow together into the full stature of Christ, ready to be his witnesses to the world, crashing through the grates of hell to plunder from Satan's house souls that he wants to keep for himself and bringing them into new life in God's kingdom. We are a people who are full of truth and love when navigating conflict. Now, what are you willing to do to make that statement a reality in your relationships? This is the part where we take some time and you reflect quietly about what is God teaching you? What came to your mind as you were hearing the instructions of Jesus, as you were hearing these psalms and proverbs about receiving correction, what is God teaching you and what are you willing to do about it? I encourage you over the next couple of minutes of quiet reflection to come up with a statement that starts with the words, I will. An action step a step of obedience to what God is teaching you. Change is inevitable. Transformation is intentional. What are you willing to do to be transformed according to God's lead on your life today? So take a few minutes, and then we will catch up with each other after this time of quiet reflection.
me as as much as uh, as it was directed to anyone. Um, what we're going to do now is give you the opportunity to um, kind of live out that connectedness. You are probably, if you're um, uh, in in the live stream, you're probably in a, a room or even a, a household or some kind of situation where there are other people and. I encourage you, have a conversation about what God is teaching you and what you're willing to do about it. In this room, we've got people who are sitting at tables, so we're going to encourage people to connect with people who they trust uh, and, and have that conversation about what God is teaching you, what you're willing to do about it, because we know that uh, even though that's not what normally happens in, uh, in, in the church, we know that... Uh, the instructions of Jesus are to be a people connected for a purpose, um, and that character transformation doesn't happen just by listening to a message. It, it happens in the conversations that happen afterwards. So we encourage you to do that online. Share with us. Uh, we've got Rachel in the room who's moderating, and uh, we'll share with the the, the larger room um, what, uh, what you're sharing, and uh, uh, man, this is, this is an important one, and we're going to keep going along these lines of things are going to be different um, when we catch up with each other next week, so I look forward to seeing you next week. Enjoy your conversation. Mm-hmm.